We did eat our own dog food from day one, from a resource consumption standpoint and, and scalability from that side. Although we were consuming our own platform itself, we learned a lot in many ways the hard way. Across the last year and a half is really when we started to, to make that transition. We had to go back and you know change a number of things. We, had, we started having really large enterprises. I've got 85,000 containers in my environment and then I've got 5,000 applications on Kubernetes. Could you support that out of the box? My name is Matt Provo. I'm the founder and CEO of Stormforge. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Matt Provo built the automation platform for Kubernetes resource management at scale. All this and more on Code Story. Matt Provo has been married for 16 years and has three kids. So between the Provo household and his startup, there's never a dull moment. He's originally from the West Coast until he came to Boston for grad school. He was influenced through his love of sports, specifically playing soccer through college. And early in life, he had the opportunity to help start a nonprofit organization based around documentary films of children in Africa. In doing so, he learned a lot about, and fell in love with, building a healthy, impactful organization. While building a platform surrounding HVAC software, Matt and his team ran into some challenges around the diversity of their implementation. When they lifted and shifted to Kubernetes, they unlocked the problem around resource scaling that their current solution targets today. This is the creation story of Stormforge. Towards the end of my time at, at Apple and then uh, when, when I was back in grad school, you know, this concept of, of AI-driven solutions in particular in the, in the enterprise was starting to, starting to pick up some steam. But there was a lot of AI washing where, you know, you tag AI uh, onto something because, uh, and back it with a big marketing budget, you know, and that's seemingly good enough. And so I was increasingly frustrated seeing that happen with some large organizations that were getting a lot of airtime, if you will, that I won't name uh, too directly. But that frustration uh, was my first kind of sending off point. I had some relationships with some folks that were doing their PhDs in applied math. And we really just set out to, to build something real at the core from a machine learning and AI standpoint. And so everything we were about for the first two or three years really was operating in kind of a lab type environment where we said our goal is to build something real at the core that could ultimately, you know, intersect between data science and engineering that could be, you know, productized and then ultimately taken to market. And so we were really fortunate at the beginning to have um, some very patient investors that believed in, believed in us. We didn't know what the application of our technology was going to be. And, and the, the truth of the matter is, um, you know, we've pivoted a couple times. You've got to have a really talented team with differentiated technology that's attached to the right, you know, market opportunity at the right time. And so the first application of our technology was attaching it to how um, HVAC servers and large manufacturing equipment consumes electricity. We would tune uh, the different kind of knobs, if you will, from a software standpoint. 
and yet we ran into some challenges around just the the diversity of e any given implementation from an IT infrastructure standpoint. And it was at that point that, uh, and at the time we were a Docker Swarm shop and we were running into scale challenges and a bunch of other things. And so we ourselves lifted and shifted to Kubernetes. And it was in this lift and shift that we really unlocked the problem that we solve today. And so Stormforge, uh, you know, the platform that we have both in a pre-production and production environment for applications running on Kubernetes is uh, basically tailor-made to optimize how resources are consumed. Typically, organizations are having to choose between things like cost or performance. They're manually tuning their applications or they are just over-provisioning to ensure the app never goes down and you know spending 50, 60, 70% more than they need to. And so the Stormforge platform sits right in the middle of all of that chaos. Um, you know, with, with Kubernetes, people move to Kubernetes because of its flexibility and, and portability, and then they get kind of smacked in the face downstream as they're opera operationalizing with its complexity. And so thankfully, you know, from an ML standpoint, we like chaos, we like complexity. And if we have data, it's a really good spot for us to sit in. And so the, the platform sits right there, helps developers, empowers developers into the process to give them thresholds on how much autonomy they're comfortable with. And um, it can be anything from kind of set and forget to, you know, they still have quite a bit of control on, on the recommendations uh, that, that our engine sends back. We're focused on not requiring developers to, to make those trade-offs between the metrics they care about uh, for their applications. Tell me about the MVP. So that, that first version of the product, and, and you mentioned pivot, so you can take it to any, any MVP, any MVP pivot, wherever you want to take it for me. But how long did it take you to build that MVP and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? I, I will tell you straight up, the MVP, the first version of Stormforge of the, you know, the Kubernetes optimization piece was, was pretty rough and a little scary. However, you know, based on kind of my background and the, and the team's focus, one thing that, that I would say is, is kind of one of the company's superpowers is not building in a vacuum. We talked to hundreds of developers along the way. We had design partners, you know, really from the beginning. I think the most uh, challenging part, both from an actual, uh, you know, software standpoint, as well as the process of, of that pivot is, I went back to our board of directors seven weeks after we had closed our Series A and had the board meeting associated with that, which was tied to the energy management solution. And within about seven or eight weeks, smacked us in the face that we needed to pivot. And we had all those conversations and did a bunch of validation. From a tooling standpoint, you know, that's that's also when we were shifting from things like Docker Swarm to, to Kubernetes ourselves. And we were fortunate to have a few engineers early on at the company that uh, were part of kind of the original crew of an open source and community standpoint of contributing to, to Kubernetes and, and how it was built. We've always been a machine learning data science focused company. And so we use all the all the tools that you would expect from a Python standpoint to use quite a bit of TensorFlow over over the years or React on, on the front end and, you know, pretty, pretty agile from an overall standpoint. With any MVP or any early product, you, you got to make certain decisions and trade offs. And you kind of alluded at a high level to some of these, but I want to I want to give space for a full answer. So tell me about some of those decisions and trade offs that you had to make. Um, and how you coped with them. 
I would say that, especially early on, as we were, you know, getting to MVP, it feels like there were, you know, thousands of those minute, what seeming were seemingly minute decisions that, you know, now and you know, fr- kind of from an obsessive compulsive standpoint, all of us look back on in certain ways and you know, connect some level of of tech debt, you know, from time to time to to some of those decisions. But we focused we focus squarely at the application layer at the moment and we and everything we do assumes a you know an understanding or a you know an alignment with the definition of an application within a kubernetes environment the other piece was deciding that we were going to go all in on being an ex- kind of an experiment driven uh, platform versus other options that we could have taken and so at a kind of a high level you know those pieces focusing like the application layer um, driving and focusing on what do we do for developers inside of a kubernetes yaml file versus kind of being overly ui driven kind of stripping uh, a lot of that away and, and automating a lot of that away we made us a, a very intentional decision you know, I think uh, AI sometimes gets a bad rap for automating people out of the process completely and sometimes fear of them being automated out of a job. And so a big decision for us was how do we make sure that the developer is empowered into the process while we at the same time automate away the tasks that you know they don't want to be doing on an ongoing basis anyways, but need, need to be managing. And so I think categorically, those were some of the big bets we're making. We bet that developers know their app and we don't. We bet that YAML and kind of interacting inside of that file is going to become increasingly important. And so we, we made a choice to stay for a long time as a, honestly, as a CLI only driven experience. And then we made a lot of decisions around what level of control do we always want the developer or the practitioner or the user to have versus black box and, and and take everything away from them. And so this concept of explainable AI had a lot of impact on us. I think you see that today in the platform. Um, we do have a, you know, much more of a user flow now uh, should, should people want to take that uh, alongside the CLI. But, you know, it was those decisions, I think, at the beginning that helped us build trust and, and really build a core of developers who, uh, frankly, started communicating or quote unquote marketing on our behalf uh, to a lot of their peers and a lot of people in the community um, about, you know, the problems that we were solving and, and how we were solving them. And, and that's, that's been a good source of, uh, increased adoption for us. Then from that point, right, how have you progressed the product and how have you matured it? And, and to put that in a box, what I'm looking for is, is how you built your roadmap and how you decided, how you went about deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build or address with Stormforge. First and foremost, nothing that I would put at the feature level ultimately ends up being built and certainly not shipped without significant customer or user input. Even as we've scaled and grown, you know, we've invested in making sure that they're a part of the process. We have our go-to people that engage with us. We haven't gone as far as, you know, some organizations, which I think is pretty cool in a lot of cases, to be honest, where the entire roadmap is, you know, published open source and kind of like community driven we have, we've not gone to that but i can say pretty confident very confidently that you know our roadmap is determined at least 
in half uh, or 50 percent you know of the weight of what goes onto the roadmap at least is is driven by our users and customers which is i think a you know a, a really good a really good piece at the beginning i mentioned cli only you know that's really really developed from a cli or user experience uh, standpoint our kubernetes controller in particular has uh, which is open sourced has has kind of taken huge leaps and bounds forward we were pre-production only and and very very dependent from a data input standpoint on uh, load and performance tests uh, for a long period of time which you know not everyone has load tests and and certainly not everyone is willing to write them uh, if they don't have them you, you know so from a data input standpoint we were very single threaded uh, for a long period of time We've been pretty aggressively adding um, additional data inputs as well as uh, a bunch of integrations with, you know, APM tools and other uh, uh, other load and performance testing tools, et cetera, out there for a long period of time, which has, you know, increased our footprint from a an optimization capability standpoint and, and also from a, a use case uh, standpoint pretty broadly. You know, a big part of our focus in the last year has been kind of closing that loop between pre-production and production for people in the same platform. And I think we've executed really, really well on that. There's something called the vertical pod autoscaler uh, in Kubernetes, and it's it's really not, it's, it's used by certainly less than 5%. A lot of the stats say more like 1% of Kubernetes users. We've added capabilities to to beat the VPA's recommendations uh, from an autoscaling standpoint. Within the next month or so, we're adding uh, what we're calling kind of two-way intelligence scaling capabilities. So we'll be uh, tuning and providing recommendations both for the VPA and the horizontal pod autoscaler, the HPA, also in the same platform. And so, again, that that's a, and that's a huge leap forward. Um, you know, nobody has has that capability, and that's another example of something that's come over the last like six eight months, mostly from talking to customers and and users. Well, let's switch to team then. So how did you go about building your team? And, and what did you look for in those people that would indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? I've got a couple jobs as the as the founder and, and CEO of the company. You know, one is I do believe culture scales. So we've invested early and heavily and continue to invest in the things that we have at the company that allow us to compete, not just from a compensation standpoint, but from a benefit standpoint, from a what we care about, you know, core competencies and values and, and those kinds of things. And I think largely people are really excited to uh, excited to be here. We get a lot of internal referrals, you know, to bring other people in. To me, it's always a, a great sign when I am excited about bringing my friend or former colleague or whoever it is into the company that I've chosen to work at, especially, at, you know, at our stage. And and so that's been, you know, I think really good. Uh, secondly, you know, my job is to surround myself with leaders in particular that, uh, but then ultimately, you know, teams that can contribute in a unique way. And then many times in areas where I don't have, I myself don't have a ton of experience. If you look at you know, our head of marketing, our head of sales, our, our CTO, our head of machine learning. Uh, these are all people with immense experience, but also incredible contributions to the company. I'm a leader and a jack of all trades in many ways. We've got functional, deep experts uh, and leaders in the key, you know, kind of in the key spots. And we did that early as well. We tried to invest early in, in that area because then, 
you know, ultimately I felt like that if you have a great culture, an exciting culture, you have uh, differentiated technology and you're, you're starting to grow. Uh, we're also backed by, you know, awesome investors. And so, you know, I think that's been a, a key piece is just kind of getting those leaders in place and then allowing them to, to run and build their parts of the organization. And then lastly, I would say my job is towards our shareholders uh, to obviously continue increasing value but also to remove as much instability for people as possible so that we can get out of their way. That's something that was really instilled in me during my time at Apple and something that I would, you know, Steve Jobs in particular as a leader was pretty fantastic at. And uh, that's, that really had a big impact on me. I think if we can do that in the right way and on an ongoing basis, it'll continue um, building the organization in a, in a healthy and sustainable way. And people will continue wanting to be here and, uh, and bring others along for the right That's a critical component to scaling is that that team culture. And I like what you said, that, that culture does culture does scale. And I think that's true. Speaking of scale, let's flip to scalability. And, and given, you know, the context of your product and what you support, this will be super interesting. And I'm curious where you'll take the question. But did you build this to scale efficiently from day one? Or have you been fighting this as you've grown and gained traction? We did eat our own dog food from day one. Uh, you know, from a resource consumption standpoint and, and scalability from that side. A lot of our original folks in, you know, in pro big P product were, you know, data scientists, PhDs, et cetera. And so I think one of the biggest challenges, certainly one of the biggest challenges we ran into, and I think this is common, you know, I, I get to interact with a lot of startups in particular, you know, Harvard, MIT type spinoff startups. And there's a few phases, in my opinion, that are really, really challenging for the kind of harder tech type of solutions. One is like at the algorithmic level, uh, like should this thing just stay in academia because of the way that it's designed? Number two, like that intersection crossing the chasm between, you know, applied mathematics or data science and, and engineering is also really, really difficult. And a bunch of companies, you know, I think die at that phase. And then thirdly is like, okay, if you've crossed that chasm, like how do you actually commercialize and, and take this thing to market? From a scale standpoint, I will just say, while we, although we were consuming our own, you know, kind of our own platform itself, from an actual scale of our own platform standpoint, um, we learned a lot and in many ways, a lot, a lot of things that uh, we learned the hard way. We had to respond. And so I would say that across the last year and a half uh, is really when we started to, to make that transition. We had to go back and, you know, change a number of things in the core, you know, in the back end and the core kind of APIs, et cetera, that we, we had to, to get, to make sure we could scale. Because we had, we had, we started having really large enterprises. I mean, Fortune 20 or, you know, the largest, a couple of the largest banks in the world and other people saying, we love what you guys do. I've got 85,000 containers in my environment and, and I've got 5,000 applications on Kubernetes. Could you support that out of the box? And, you know, pretty quickly. And, you know, as we were running into a lot of this, the answer was no. I mean, the core machine learning certainly could, but from a you know product scalability standpoint and handling scale, there were certainly some big challenges. And so that's been, you know, I think a 
a big part of our journey as well. That hasn't always been easy, but you know, ultimately, I think in a lot of ways, we're on the other side of. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Oh, I'm absolutely the most proud of uh, the people that I've been able to work with and, and help uh, bring them along for the journey. Super proud of the careers that have been created and furthered uh, for those that have been with Stormforge. I tell the team and I tell people all the time, like, there's a ton of transition and, you know, we absolutely want people to remain at Stormforge and continue growing with us. But even if people end up moving on from Stormforge, if we can step back and say, the company helped you, gave you experiences and helped you um, be more prepared for whatever was next, that's a win. Selfishly, it would it would be more of a win if they stayed with Stormforge and, and continued growing. But I think whether that happens or not, I mean, I'm I'm most proud of, you know, at this point, you know, hundreds of, of careers that have been impacted and furthered and and that people got to, you know, be a part of something and, and they still obviously still do uh, that they believe in. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. You mean like today? Because there's been about seven of them uh, uh, already today. Uh, That's another thing that I talk about. I just believe, actually, you know, really definitely believe is I actually think I've learned more from failure than I have from success. We were intending to release a big feature in the platform. The original release date was actually May 1st of this year. We committed to that and a number of customers, you know, design partners, et cetera, were alongside that. And there were a couple cases where we committed to that even uh, contractually. And so I think we for a bit lost sight of the fact that building software is, is like construction. Uh, it's never on time and always twice as expensive. And we went too far in making those full commitments on a kind of a bit of a drop dead date. And the truth in this scenario, I think, is that there were some business critical objectives on the side of customers and users that ended up being blocked as a result of this feature being delayed. We got a little bit over our skis uh, with that. You know, we, we learned a lot from, from that piece. Um, we learned a lot about the fact that there are, pe- there are organizations out there that, that are depending on us. There are organizations using Stormforge who have SLAs, SLOs, et cetera, directly and unequivocally connected, you know, to to what we're doing and the the value and the services that we're providing. So, yeah, I think we we learned a lot through that experience. I'm I'm not sure I'll again let us kind of get to the contractual level on on some of that, uh, or at least we'll be very intentional about when when and if we do that. But yeah, that's that's the first one that came to mind from a kind of a, a bigger issue type of thing that happened fairly recently. So what does the future look like for Stormforge, the the product and for your team? You know, we're a vertically oriented solution. We don't, you know, our our product footprint, if you will, or or our set of solutions is, is very focused. I think there's a lot of good in that, but we don't have a huge product footprint. And so we have taken a strategy and an approach that we're going to stay that way. We're going to stay being the you know the best in the best in the world at what we solve for, and then we're going to partner and integrate otherwise. And so I'm really excited about the partnerships that are uh, that we're building, the integrations that we have, and the kind of real relationships that we're we're developing. 
you know, we announced a really strategic and intentional partnership uh, with AWS recently. We've got something similar with Datadog, you know, with a few of the other Kubernetes uh, providers coming, you know, coming shortly. There's this whole world for us right now where it's 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 about integration and partnership and allowing us to stay good at where, what we're good at. And that's been really exciting for us. Um, and then secondly, I would say staying vertically oriented and focused, what you'll see from Stormforge is us continuing to add more data inputs into our platform. And so I mentioned one of the intentional decisions we made early on was staying focused at the application layer. It's time for us to, to move beyond just the application layer. We'll be adding um, things like traces and logs and even kernel level data and other data inputs that you know, kind of go down down the stack, if you will, uh, but we'll continue to feed the same optimization engine and allow us to provide just an increased amount of value, uh, hopefully, to more users and, and more organizations. I, I mentioned already the, the two-way intel, intelligence scaling, uh, which is a huge need and, and problem in the Kubernetes world that we're, um, we're really excited to take a big, a big swing at uh, to, to help solve. And I'd say the other piece for us is just continued growth and expansion. Um, I mentioned we're building out our European presence. Um, we've got a few customers in Asia right now, like in Japan, South Korea. Uh, so we'll be building out kind of that area uh, as well and doing what we can do to continue to create and uh, capture value as we, as we grow. Let's switch to you. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person you look up to and why. Kareem Lakani, one of my professors at Harvard uh, for, for grad school, just an incredible man, an incredible thinker, uh, but also an incredible operator. He's just got this really amazing balance between being a human uh, who loves his family and loves supporting them and you know being involved in their lives, but also just being a world-class uh, expert in his area. And he's one of my best friends, but also just someone I look up to every time I get a, a text from him. It's you know he's on the he's on the board of Mozilla and and a number of other companies, but he also is you know he's he's just always somewhere giving back and trying to add value. And he's an incredible leader um, and, and an incredible man. But um, yeah, I look I look up to him immensely. I would say. Well, if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do different, or where would you consider taking a different approach? And you know, perhaps that's not a mistake you'd, you'd want to learn from or change, but maybe something you'd, you would just tweak a bit. I think we could have doubled down even more on the product side earlier on. Um, you know, I, uh, based on that being a big part of my background, I kind of owned that for, for a long time. But I even found my own bias, you know, impacting what we were going to build and how we were going to build it. And so I think investing earlier in, in that piece um, would have been a would be something I would tweak and change. I would say externally, you know, we didn't take any venture capital. Was, the company's raised just over seventy million um, at this point, but we uh, didn't take any venture capital, which I don't think I would change that necessarily. We had um, you know angel investors that that backed the company. I think that I probably would tweak maybe looking for a strategic investor from one of the first you know, big customers we would have or someone that could have come in from a, 
from a customer facing standpoint to give us like kind of continued and ongoing advice much earlier in the company's history. I think those two tweaks in particular, at least in the first, if I would say first two years of the company, um, could have, you know, probably would have had an outsized impact if we would, if we would have done that. Okay. Well, last question. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Slow and steady. Um, I think I would, I would really dig in there from the standpoint of, yes, you're on a burning platform, but that doesn't mean that you have to make decisions that fall within sort of the Silicon Valley driven norm of, of doing things. So you don't immediately need to go uh, get into an accelerator and give away 30% of the company. You don't immediately need to do you know some of these pieces that a lot has been ingrained from a formulaic standpoint. So slow and steady to me means you know invest in the strategy that you have, understand where the knowns and and frankly the unknowns are and and what you're doing to reduce the number of unknowns as as quickly as possible and then stick with it right so the only way to guarantee that you're not going to succeed is to is to give up and so um and then i think lastly one one thing that i i also have did early with both my companies was I, sur- I tried to surround myself and thereby the the original team with a set of you know advisors that were willing to put in some time and effort to to help guide and and help you know grow the initial foundation and pieces of the company because building in a vacuum is not only true for the the product itself it can also be true for the kind of the foundation and structure of the company and so I think investing in that early is is paramount you'll you'll pay it forward in ways that you you can't even come close to seeing out of the gate i mean i can say without a doubt the company would not be here today in all likelihood um, without the advice guidance and direction to myself and, and the original call it 10 to 20 people of the company without uh, a, a very specific group of people that decided they were going to support us and, and give us guidance in a way that, uh, that helped us see around corners that we might not have been able to see ourselves. Uh, all, all fantastic bits of advice. Well, Matt, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Stormforge. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me. It was an awesome conversation. It felt like we were just, you know, hanging out over coffee, chatting, and I uh, just appreciate the opportunity to tell you and, and the listeners about uh, a little bit more about Stormforge and what we're up to. Pleasure was all mine. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.